This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Don't change that dial. It's time for Navigating the Newsroom. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Andrew. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to episode number nine of Navigating the Newsroom with Andrew and Andrew. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Andrew Robinson. And this is the show on Film Geek Radio devoted exclusively to discussion and analysis of the HBO series, The Newsroom. Oh, how are you doing, Andrew? I'm doing great, man. I mean, the Olympics are over, so... I know, you're pro- I, I know you're probably pretty upset. Well, I mean, upset isn't the way to put it. Um, I guess what I should say is, uh, if uh, everyone knows I'm Jamaican on this podcast. However, I do reside in Trinidad and Tobago. So I got the wonderful gift on Monday morning, finding out that Monday was a national holiday because Trinidad got a gold medal. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Trinidad got a gold medal. So you, they, it became a holiday? Yes. Trinidad won their first gold medal in, I think, around... 20 years at the Olympics. Wow. So they decided to call Monday a national holiday. I woke up in the morning, was up at 7 a.m., was jumping out of the shower to run to work. Something made me look at my computer, and I looked at the newspaper, and it was a national holiday. Wow. I wish that happened every time the U.S. won a gold medal. But then you guys would have, like, three weeks of holidays. Exactly. It would be amazing. Because Michael Phelps alone keeps you guys a week. Okay. Well, uh, let, let, let's get on with the show. We are very uh, privileged to have a special guest on today. He uh, has been writing recaps of the newsroom and reviews over at Vulture.com. Chadwick Matlin, thanks for joining us today on the show. Happy to be with you guys. And if your listeners are upset that the podcast is a day late, it's my fault. I messed up the timing. <laughs> it's okay. We forgive you. Um, today, we're actually going to be talking about episode number eight of the show, which has a, a quite a lengthy title. It is The Newsroom, episode number eight, The Blackout, part one, tragedy porn, written by Aaron Sorkin, of course, and directed again by our old friend Greg Matola, who's been directing quite a few of uh, episodes this season. So did I miss the tragedy porn section of the show? I think you did. <laughs> but isn't it the best title? Can we nominate that best title of the season? I mean, I guess you could say there was a tragedy in the form of the Casey Anthony trial. But other than that, there wasn't a whole lot of tragedy, and there wasn't any porn. So I was kind of let down. There was some discussion of asses, though, so... That's true. That's true. Chadwick, um, I've been reading your reviews of the newsroom, and I get the impression you're not a huge fan of the show. It's a whole lot... Of squandered potential at that wonderful television show that we sit down with. At this point, though, I've sort of become resigned to its mediocrity. And so within the mediocrity, I think it does a very good job of being mediocre. But you can only arrive at that once you've sort of made peace with its existence. I'm pretty sure they're going to use that quote on the poster for season two. It's the best kind of mediocre. If I'm still recapping this show come season two, you guys have license to uh, remind me that I did not actually enjoy my first go around. (laughs) Well, reading your reviews has been entertaining. Um, I believe this past week you actually wrote your review and you wrote it in the form of an email sent by a new character that was introduced, Brian 
Brenner. What prompted you to do that? Were you that enthusiastic about this brand new character? Well, Brian uh, was a writer for New York Magazine. Will has drafted him to uh, both wage war on Mackenzie emotionally and also uh, get at Leona for doing whatever crazy plot it is that she's up to uh, with the TMI business. And um, and Vulture, the site that I write for, is uh, part of New York Magazine. And so right. I figured if anyone would have the scoop on the internal emails between Brian and his editor, it would be, it would be Vulture. You're right. You're absolutely right. Um, and I also liked how you implied that uh, Brian Brenner is, in fact, kind of a creepy stalker who's following everyone around, including Charlie. Well, journalists, all journalists are creepy stalkers. <laughs> I guess that's a good point. <laughs> uh, other than the journalists on Newsnight who just don't seem to do any actual on-the-ground reporting. They just pick up the phone and call their friends who all work for high-profile companies. <laughs> well, let me ask you, what did you think of this episode you know, compared to what we've seen leading up to this? Would you say this is one of the better episodes of the show, or is it still just overall very, very mediocre? Uh, I didn't want to go on a preachy rant after it, which is a step up from many of the episodes uh, that preceded it. Um, I don't know. At this point, for me, the newsroom is sort of just running through its paces. Like, well, there is nothing surprising that happens in the newsroom. There is no twist I mean, like this Murdoch saga with uh, Atlantic World Media or whatever, where Leona is is Rupert Murdoch and Reese is James Murdoch. It's like this bizarre sort of uh, corner that Sorkin has painted for himself. He already has a show that's based off of real events. So what does he do with his fictional events? He also bases them off of real events. It's like the man cannot just totally... like. <laughs> take a shot of whiskey and think up something totally divorced from, re- from reality. It's very strange. Um, so the point being, at this point, newsroom for me is just very much uh, going through its paces. Um, I-, I can't imagine anything that would happen in the finale uh, in two weeks that would make me like have to tune in to the premiere in season two um, because I, wa- I must find out what happens to the plot. I- there-, there is no plot to this show. So at this point, would you say you're just writing about it just because you've been assigned to and you're, you're not really looking forward to the show at all week after week? That's perhaps a bit too harsh, both on my end. I, but it, this, I, I'm a big Sorkin fan, or I was a big Sorkin fan. I, I think this is a real indictment on, on his, his creative energy. I, I think it's, it's really exposed him to be a bit of a hack. Um, the, 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 the various super cuts that went around when the show first started about repeated plot lines and repeated dialogue, I think really exposed Sorkin right. to sort of one note. Um, and so to that point in that I, I, I watch every week to try and make sense of the, the, the gradual decline of one of America's great screenwriters. And it's been a real uh, deflating experience. I think for me as a Sorkin fan to watch the show and really realize that he doesn't have a grasp on how to, how to stretch his boundaries. He only knows how to return to the well. Well, Andrew, let me ask you, what did you think of this episode of the show? Thumbs up, thumbs down? I mean, I know you hated last week's episode, so was this a step up from that, at least? Um, This was definitely a step up, because it, it decided to, at the very least, not do what I don't want it to do, which is what it did last week, which is 
get so involved in the factual real news that they forget to actually have characters. Um, and they actually tried to get into that this week for, 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 I don't know, the first time in what, three episodes. And I did slightly enjoy a lot of the, a lot of the interactions and I, I have to go to my, my, my favorite character, Sloane, her few moments that she had in this episode. They were just so fun. And I, I like what Chadwick said about, um, now resigning yourself to mediocrity. I guess it almost does exemplify why I found myself liking this episode. Now that I think about it, it wasn't that great an episode. And it has to do with the fact that it's just not that great a show. We've, we're eight episodes in and we're, we're, still, we're still trying very hard to look for the gold that we're mining in this, in this cave of Aaron Sorkin's mind. And it's, it's, it's not coming up. We're, we're, we're picking up pieces of tin, pieces of copper. Maybe we find one little gem here or there and it's just getting more and more difficult to keep going. It wasn't a great episode, but I do congratulate it for finally giving some form of narrative to the show as opposed to just saying hey guys news happened and we're gonna have people shout at each other for an hour well andrew i i'm i'm really kind of sad for you and i feel bad that this has happened to you because i remember at the beginning of the season it seemed like you were really enjoying the show for at least those first few episodes i, I think we both were and now i think we've both just kind of watched the show go downhill and I, I, I feel bad that you're no longer cheerleading for it. There are definitely some really interesting things in this episode, which I'll talk about in a while. But it, it, it's like, I don't know if I'll be there in season two. That's, that's, that's the end point of this. I, so I just like the show from the get-go. Um, I, I found it uh, preachy and sexist and, um, and especially uh, lost in where it wants its characters to go. So what has changed? So, but I, so I, that's why I'm interested in hearing you guys arrive at this conclusion that you know, only now do you, have you, do you feel like you're losing interest in the show. What, what was working for you guys in the first few episodes that, that has been lost over the last few not so much specifically, but I think the first indicator that I can definitely point out to show is that when we started this this and the show started, for the first three, four episodes, I'd watched the episode two, three times before I came in the podcast. I don't think I've done that since then. <laughs> I watched the episode once, churn out my, my, my recap for Screen Invasion, and then I'm on this podcast... And I don't think I've ever once gone back to think about the episode after that point. There are so many elements of this show which have disappointed me, and there are so few elements which have surprised me. And the parts that surprise me are so minute. They're, they're, they're the least important parts that you want to surprise you, that you want to keep you involved into the show, into a show like this. Um, when I think of some of my favorite television shows, and I'm not, I'm not even going to go to the ones that everyone on the internet just puts up on that high regard. I'm going to leave HBO out of this. I'm talking about the shows like um, Luther, Terriers, The Chicago Code, those kinds of shows. There are things happening in those shows. Even The Legend of Korra, which Nickelodeon put on earlier this year. There are things embedded in those shows which allow for interesting discussion every week. There are things in this show which I don't know how we find interesting discussion every week. <laughs> but you liked it at first. 
I did. And maybe it's the fact that this is a show which has overstayed its welcome. That's a, that's the best I can give you, Andrew. Okay. Well, um, Chadwick, I don't know how much experience you have with Sorkin's other TV work, but I came into this having seen all of Sports Night and having revisited all four seasons that Sorkin uh, wrote on the West Wing. Um, and I also saw Studio 60 back when it was airing. And I, I really like Sorkin as a TV writer. And I, I didn't mind at first the fact that he was repeating a lot of stuff that we had seen before in all of those shows. You know, Sorkin as a writer is very idealistic. His shows are always very much see the world uh, as a glass, glass half full kind of place. And I like that. I like that he has these kind of noble heroes um, standing up in the face of these institutions. And that seems to be a common theme of, of all of his work. And for the first three episodes of The Newsroom, you know, there were a few flaws. But overall, I, I thought that this was what Sorkin does. This is what he does best. And it's what I kind of came into the show wanting. And he gave it to me. And I was very happy about that. Um, and I, I read all of the complaints on the internet about sexism. And most of the time, while I could see where those complaints were coming from, I thought they were a bit overblown. Uh, but then I think once episode four came around, episode four was just so awful. And then everything after that has just been so mediocre. And I, I think it, it's the fact that, it's what you said, the fact that he's not really doing anything with the characters. We haven't really seen them develop much throughout the course of this season. Each episode really seems to be more about the news and reporting the news and the whatever particular stance Sorkin wants to take and, and, and preach at us about rather than focusing on the characters. And I think that is what has kind of soured me on the show. I will probably keep watching even into season two. Just because I like to give Sorkin the benefit of the doubt. Listen, I'm gonna keep watching too. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I. It is a fascinating experiment that I think has gone horribly wrong. Um, I, I think it merits watching. I disagree with uh, what Andrew said uh, earlier about it not inspiring interesting conversations because I feel as though that is all it's good for is inspiring conversations. But they're not conversations about what's happening in the show. They're conversations about um, about television, what makes for good television, what makes for for preachy television, what makes for television that um, you know can be uh, too high on itself, right? And so when you contrast this with a show like Breaking Bad, um, which is all about artful direction and all about uh, delayed gratification, Sorkin, there is no subtlety to his work, and and that has paid off very nicely in some senses. Um, and, and, and in this one, I think it's because, well, we can talk about why, but I, I, I think he's really done himself a disservice by not trying to show the gray area that all journalists operate within. And so I'm, I'm a, I work for writers full time, um, and there, there are no clear calls when it comes to ethics on tricky subjects like the ones that they're dealing with in the newsroom, and yet they're they're expressed to us as though they're black and white and they're expressed to us as though the characters always know the right decision. And except for two instances, only know the right, always know the right decision well before the rest of the journalistic establishment do. And that is maddening because it doesn't allow for, for, for development. It just allows for 
plot, uh, point A to point B travel. Yeah, I agree with you completely. A lot of the issues that Sorkin has tried to explore, he just hasn't really gone very in-depth as to why those are interesting issues to explore. Um, and and we'll, we'll talk about the main sort of thematic arc of this episode, um, the whole ratings versus principles thing in, in a little bit. But first, I, 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 I want to get your opinion on this whole Rupert Murdoch hacking scandal that seems to have come up as a, as a subplot. That was sort of the big reveal at the end of the last episode, that there was this huge scandal involving hacking that was going on. And I, I came away from that episode thinking, okay, maybe this will be an interesting twist. Maybe this twist will inject some life into the show and, and make for some interesting drama. And there was a little bit of that this episode, but then afterwards I realized I'm pretty sure I can forecast what is going to happen in the last two episodes of the season. I'm pretty sure I, I can guess how this is all going to turn out. And so it didn't feel very suspenseful to me, and it, it, I, I don't think that there are going to be any major surprises. How did you feel about that whole subplot? For me, it is a... I agree with you, but I, I think we only think that we know what's going to happen because Sorkin has yet to go off script. So I think what would be the most inter- interesting thing that could happen in the season finale is if a real news event happened and Sorkin broke code and made it so that we are no longer in reality. For whatever reason, something else happened that didn't actually happen in real life. And it applies, therefore, to this subplot that he has created based on reality when it should be based on fiction. That's point one. Point two, the News of the World hacking scandal, quote-unquote, had nothing to do with hacking. It did not involve the NSA or any government organization. It was a group of reporters who were told both tacitly and explicitly to go and work the voicemails of potential tabloid uh, stars and try and get the voicemails uh, off of, off of the, the, the voicemail accounts. So they would guess the passcodes, that kind of thing. That's not hacking like with the NSA, you know, eavesdropping on, on Americans. That happens as well. And, and, um, the Wired had a great cover story about it uh, a few months ago. But that's, it's, like, it, it's such a conflation of news. And so Sorkin is not only trying to have his cake and eat it too. He's trying to have a, a, a Ponderosa buffet and eat it too. And it is, it's just everything becomes much cloudier the moment you pretend to be based in reality. Um, because then you have to be based in reality. But he blurs this in such weird ways. And so you don't know whether to judge him on his, his truthfulness or whether to judge him on the sort of narrative effect. And, and unfortunately, the truthfulness that he does skew to, I think, sabotages the narrative. Would you say that that's your biggest hang-up with the show is the fact that it uses real-life news? It's not what I think about when I'm watching. It's not like that's what annoys me about the show. I think that is the show's flaw. That's the show's central flaw. My biggest hang-up with the show is its female characters. But, yeah, I think the show would be vastly improved if in season two it turned into the West Wing. And every now and then, you know, I had a rip from the headlines thing that was sort of transposed into the newsroom world, but in a different way. I, I just, I think he's painted himself in a corner. You said your biggest problem has been the female characters. There are female characters on the show? Yes, and you wouldn't know it because they're all idiots, and so they're not memorable. Except for some who is really smart and really hot, but therefore 
has no social life. It's like she can't just write a well it, – it's bizarre. It's really bizarre how he just digs in at females over and over again. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and come to the defense right here. Um, Sloane is really hot. She's really smart. Has no social life. What's Jim now? Well, Jim is a super uh, talented individual who does have a uh, faded lover. Right? Sloane doesn't even get a faded lover. And moreover, when Neil hypothetically insults her slipping to the way to the top and having a big butt. She doesn't even bother to refute the far more damaging uh, allegation there that she sucked her way to the top. She objectifies her own body and body snarks herself and worries that she has too big of a butt. And doesn't matter with the fact that the far more damaging critique is that people in the office doubt her ability. I think what you've touched on there, Chadwick, is the fact that even though the newsroom claims to have these grand ambitions and wants to make these huge statements and it wants to talk about real-life news, in terms of its characters and particularly in terms of its sense of humor, it feels very much like a sitcom. And, you know, the whole joke about Sloane's ass, I could totally see that being played for laughs on, I don't know, an episode of Two and a Half Men or something. Which is a sexist show! Well, sure, but you know, I can imagine that happening, in, in and maybe even working, in the context of a different show. But with what the newsroom is supposedly trying to do, and you know, with Sorkin basically screaming at the audience, "You need to take me seriously." Th- that sort of s- sitcommy sense of humor, I-, I just don't think meshes very well, and it makes the the show very tonally inconsistent. I would agree with that. So uh, here's here's a thought. I uh, agree with the whole sitcommy nature, and I guess I I, I kind of feed into the sitcommy nature at times because those are the few moments in the show where I'm now enjoying a lot more because that Sloan scene had me in stitches. But but a moment, let me just ask this question: um, When Neil approaches Sloan and says, "Hey, so I'm trying to th- see if I can use this, and I'm going to make up some ridiculous stuff," and he says these two things, as you said, that you have a big ass and you slept your way to the top. Is it possible? Can you see it possible that she was offended by the big ass comment more than the sleeping to the top because she can refute sleeping to the top, but if it's true that she has a big ass, she has something that she wants to be she wants to know, she wants to This isn't so that's something that's 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 tangible right there that people can see and either prove or disprove so that i'd kind of buy in having an actual reaction to going like where did you get that thought from is it real sure perhaps but it creates a character whose insecurity is about her body the same the same the same character who every time that wants to talk about relationship things her immediate response is i'm not good at those things right but again would there be a male character on a Sorkin show who would be insecure about his body? Well, I mean, we don't usually have jokes saying your balls are too big. Right, and but again, this, uh, but here's the point, and this gets what Andrew was saying earlier. Sorkin is asking us in the show to be a cut above, you know, in theory, the rest of the, 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 the mindless population, right? He then has to hold himself to the same standard, and he needs to be a cut above the mindless television that 
he himself makes fun of over and over and over again. And mindless TV has stock characters and sexist gender tropes. And Sloane's response to that question suggests that Sorkin has not thought about how to create a smarter uh, female character the way that, in theory, he's thinking about how to create smarter TV news. I guess. Um, Chadwick, have you seen Sports Night? Yeah. I think it's important to remember that, you know, that show, Sports Night, was essentially a sitcom about a a, a news show, essentially. Um, And... I can to- I could totally envision in my head that exchange between Neil and Sloan happening on Sports Night yeah. uh, between one of the characters and Felicity Huffman's character, and you know she would say some joke like, "What you think my ass is big?" Cue laugh track, and that's the end of it, and no one really cares, and it, it just kind of fits within the show. But because he's sort of trying to mix that sitcom style with the grand gestures that he made in the West Wing. It just doesn't work, um, and I think he just needs to pick one or the other. Is he gonna? Is he gonna go sports night style? You know, should we line up a laugh track and get that ready, or is he going to stick with uh, what more along the lines of what he was doing in the West Wing? Um, and until that decision is made, I, I feel like as an audience member, I'm not going to know how I should look at the show and how I should feel about what is happening. That's all I wanted to say. I agree with that. My one final comment on this is that even on sport, a sexist joke is a sexist joke. Even on Sports Night, that joke would have been crass and sexist. Tonally, it may have fit with the show differently, but a female character worrying about her body image over her professional image is a classic television degradation. But we can move on. All right. Well, uh, let's move on to this whole new Brian Brenner thing that has popped up and that uh, you wrote about so eloquently, Chadwick. I'm not quite sure why he's there. And I don't, you know, they they try to explain in the episode why Will would hire the guy that McKenzie cheated on him with. And it just did not make much sense to me. And it really felt like... he wants to hold his hand over a flame. (laughs) Oh, that's right. That's right. He wants to hold his hand. He's a pyromaniac, so he hired Mackenzie's ex-boyfriend. Yeah, that just that did not work for me. And just the whole thing with him barging into into his therapist's office. Again, that's the kind of thing that I would expect to see on a typical broadcast sitcom, but not HBO. You mean that you you mean unlike Entourage? I actually haven't seen Entourage, so I can't comment. What what did you guys think of the whole Brian Brenner thing. Why is he there? I view it as just Sorkin trying to create some tension, some dramatic tension, but it doesn't come off that well. I mean, looking at it from Will's perspective, I want to I wanna give him credit and call it a power move in the fact that, a power play in the fact that he gets to, he gets to have leverage over this individual because this guy knows what pain he's caused him. But at the same time, if he produces something fantastic, it also adds credibility to the fact that Bran would would try to have this this negative bias towards Will. And if it can come up with something positive at the same time while having that bias, it just proves even further as to what Will and Mackenzie are trying to do. The other thing is that there is that conversation that happens where 
Brian guesses Will's agenda, and Will openly admits his agenda to Brian, and the agenda is that Brian writes a story that outs Leona for trying to get Will fired through TMI and planting stories. In theory, that's why Will has professionally brought Brian in. That's what we're told. That Brian is a, is a, is a pawn for Will's master plan. Right, but why not somebody else? Why the guy that Mackenzie cheated on him with? Because Will loves Mackenzie so much, he goes out to Tiffany's, buys her a fake ring, and keeps it anyway. I mean, you know, it's the same thing. Why does he do any of this stuff to Mackenzie? It's, he's, he's a psychopath when it comes to love. That, that is a good point. Um, Chadwick, let me ask you. He tells Brian that they'll just put a little sentence or whatever at the beginning saying that Brian is friends with Mackenzie to sort of disclose their relationship. Is that enough? Journalistically? Yes. Absolutely not. I mean, honestly, he would be uh, blacklisted if he if it was discovered after this piece came out that he was that he once slept with Mackenzie and has personal history with Will. That that's what I was thinking. You know, I was thinking to myself, okay, I'm pretty sure if it's just that they're if if the implication is just that they're acquaintances, that might be okay. Maybe he can get away with that. But once it comes out that he actually slept with her, yeah, that is just ethically not good at all. Um, and if, if I may, media relationships are never secret. So once that piece came out, it was going to come out that he used to sleep with Mackenzie. It's, it, the, the media world is a gossipy one, um, and everyone knows who's sleeping with whom. Well, right, and people don't know how to send emails. No, and Mackenzie doesn't know how to send emails. It, it, information just tends to get out that way. So, Any other thoughts on the whole Brian Brenner issue, Andrew? I don't know. Maybe Sorkin has a three-way in plan. I have no clue what's going on there. <laughs> That's the series finale right there. Right there. Okay, well, uh, before we dive into our main topic, I, I do want to talk briefly about my favorite character on the show, Don. Don, who doesn't get enough credit. He has one major scene in this episode where he's basically schooling the newsroom on how to sell out. I actually found that a little bit interesting in terms of what he was explaining about the placement of the graphics and how the broadcast uh, would need to be edited and how it um, draws viewers' attention and makes them feel a certain way. Chadwick, what did you think of that scene with uh, Don? Because I know there has been a lot of uh, criticism from certain writers about that scene and, and how it, it could be interpreted as sexist. Uh, I thought I agree. His, his little lecture about how Nancy Grace makes the news was interesting. Uh, I mean, I, I come from more of a print background than a, a broadcast background, and, and even as a journalist, I found that interesting. And it might be well-known among broadcast journalists, I don't know, but Certainly, uh, it, that kind that kind of uh, thing I think is 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 what Sorkin goes for, right? Which is television that that can inform the electorate, if you will, uh, but also has something to do with the narrative at hand. Uh, which I, so I thought I thought that worked well until he got to the sexist part where he said uh, something like uh, that: the one way to get ratings is to show a bad mother because all women want to feel superior or something like that. And then eventually all the, all the women in the room raise their hands. They wish they were Kaylee's mom. And it's just, it's just gender essentialism. You know, again, no generalization about men would ever happen in that way on a certain show. 
Well, that, that's interesting that, that you bring that up because, um, as you mentioned, one thing that the newsroom is good for is inspiring people to um, talk about what makes good tele- television and what makes bad television. And this whole idea of sexism in the newsroom, I think it's been fascinating to follow that conversation. And so my question to you would be, do you feel that the show can be sexist if it is adequately and accurately presenting reality? For example, if that is the reason that many women did watch the Casey Anthony uh, footage because it did make them feel superior and psychologically that is the actual motivation behind it, is the show still sexist for pointing that out? Right. So a few things. One, uh, it, it's a very good question, and I think so. Think something that a lot of TV people wrestle with: how much, how much of actual reality to depict in fictionalized shows. And so, if we, when we see, for example, um, the racial discrimination in Mad Men, we don't say that's racist, right? Because it depicts how how African Americans were actually treated in the '60s. But what we see in Sorkin is that the sexism is used as laugh lines, as we've, as we've already talked about with Sloan. And also, there's a real sort of glee in the way these lines are delivered that make the men feel important. Listen, Don's a douchebag in the show. No, uh, no offense to your favorite character. Uh, no, he is. You're right. And so that's where it gets especially interesting, I think, which is that there's a douchebag being a douchebag by insulting women, right? And so what then what are we supposed to think? Are we supposed to think it's just Don being Don and so... Uh, you know, of course he'll be making these comments because it's within his character. But the, the larger question here is, do people who put things on television have an obligation to push culture and society forward by depicting a slightly more equal society? Um, does it only reinforce the very social issues that we're grappling with by putting them on air without any type of discussion about whether they're right or not? And say all you want about Glee but at least Glee, and, and Glee has a lot of issues with the way it treats serious topics, but it usually has some type of commentary about the topic. And we're, we know how we're supposed to feel about characters' behavior by the end. Don's line is, is a toss-away. There's no commentary about whether it's right or wrong. And, and I would suggest that that then is an implicit endorsement of that kind of behavior. Okay, so would you disagree with his assertion then that the reason so many women tune into the Casey Anthony trial is because it makes them feel superior subconsciously the way you phrased it no that's very possible the way don phrased it and i'm, I'm trying uh, uh, i'm going to try and talk as i pull up my notes here from from the um from the show um but oh yeah here it is no one's no one so here we already have generalization which is the key which is the first hint that something is about to go terribly wrong in our show. no one's ever gone broke in america serving up a woman who makes other women feel superior. So the type of total generalization here, it's, it's, it's no one has ever gone broke. And usually the people fronting them are men serving up a woman who's, who's just a sacrificial man. And, and therefore that woman has no agency herself in this case, Casey Anthony, who makes other women feel superior and the feel superior is said with a real snarl, right? That these, that, that the women at large are actually wrong for feeling superior when they look at Casey Anthony. And listen, plenty of people on... See, I, I didn't get that impression from the way okay. he said it. I just got the impression... I didn't get the impression that he was looking down on these women for feeling superior. I got the impression he was just pointing out that, you know, subconsciously, that's why they tune in. And that's why the ratings go up. 
And I, I, I find the, the whole thing about sexism in the newsroom fascinating, and I think there is merit to a lot of it. But at the end of the day, part of me wonders if all, if, if, if all of these individual elements um, that people are attacking and saying it's sexist, if that was the only quote-unquote sexist element in the show, would people even notice? And I'm not, I'm not sure. I think maybe it's the fact that there's, there are so many instances of it. Um, and so many things for people to, to, to point at and to latch on to that suddenly, week after week, it becomes easier to look and say, oh, that's sexist, that's sexist, that's sexist, when if we hadn't seen what had come previously, maybe we wouldn't feel that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, I agree. And I think I, I, th- this instance in particular is a small one. I agree with you. It, and I think the, the interpretation stems from a show that has two main characters in Maggie and Mackenzie who are flighty at best um, and who seem to not be in control of their emotions at any moment. Right. Um, And that is a major problem. And I'm disappointed that Sorkin hasn't developed his female characters in a very progressive way, because I don't know how you felt about Sports Night or The West Wing, but I actually thought that there were some very compelling female characters on those shows. Um, And there were female characters that felt very three-dimensional and very uh, realistic to a large degree, uh, particularly in The West Wing. So I've been kind of disappointed in in the newsroom at how superficial a lot of these female characters are, particularly McKenzie, who can be very annoying. Andrew, did you have anything you wanted to add about the scene with Don? Oh, there's so much. Um, first of all, I agree. It is an interesting scene for the sake of somewhat edifying us on how broadcasting goes into creating these these productions that they call the news. But the first question that comes to mind is, Mackenzie is a seasoned executive producer. And anyone who's ever had a job, even if it's their dream job, knows that at some point in their life, they've had to do some form of their job that wasn't exactly their ideal way of doing it. How does she not know this, this form of news production at this point in her life? You mean, how does McKinsey not know this? Yeah, not, I need to call in Don to, to, to run the news team through this tutorial. Oh, I got the sense that she was like a principled objection, that she couldn't possibly lower herself to teaching others how to do this crap. Right. That's sort of what I got from it as well. And that's actually a good segue into our main topic uh, for the week, which which is that whole dilemma that McKinsey faces in this episode between uh, her principles and the need to get more ratings. Um, And while I do think that that is an interesting conflict, you know, it kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier, Chadwick, about how everything in the newsroom is painted as so black and white. You know, there's right and there's wrong and you can't compromise at all. And I found myself thinking during this episode, why not? What's wrong with a little bit of Casey Anthony coverage before you move on to some of the more important issues that you want to talk about? Why not try to think of a way to present um, the Casey Anthony coverage in a way that is less manipulative and maybe a, a bit more quote-unquote principled. And it, it, it doesn't seem to me like the show is even willing to consider that, even going as far as to have it that the final scene of the episode 
is an act of God that basically reinforces McKinsey's point of view, where it seems like in the, the world of the newsroom, the universe just can't allow for McKinsey to, to undermine her own convictions. And so there has to be this major blackout, almost if God is saying, that's right, we're not going to let you do it because we're going to make sure that you stay on the, the straight and narrow. And it just felt a bit heavy-handed to me. Um, I, don't, I don't know. What did you think about that, Chadwick? Fully agree. I mean, a bit heavy-handed. I would go in full heavy-handed, especially because there was no power outage that day in New York City. And again, we get back to whether or not Sorkin should be basing this on reality. If he is going to base it on reality, then the whole thing has to be on reality. And there was no power outage. And there was no 98-degree heat wave in the middle of May. To your point about balance, there are plenty of sites on the Internet, many of the ones that people like to read, that treat lowbrow with a highbrow lens. So when a story like Casey Anthony will come up, you know, you can talk about at large the problem of a single motherhood. Or you can talk about why it is that the Casey Anthony case is transfixed in the media the way that it is. You bring people, sociologists in to talk about, you know, exactly what Don tries to talk about, Right. And you can go after your competitors like Nancy Grace that way. You can try and break down footage the way that Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert do all the time with politics and Fox News. There are ways to get at these stories that Will could still feel okay about. But they choose to degrade anybody who's even interested in a little bit of fluff. That the entire news establishment should be focused only on things that are educational. That are only vegetables and no sweets whatsoever. Right, only the debt ceiling, nothing else. Right, which which it's there is. I mean, even PBS doesn't do that. Right, that's 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 a good point, Andrew. What did you think about that whole idea of the ratings versus principles and how that was depicted in the episode? First of all, I think the immediate thought is to go back to um, I think it's episode two where we not episode two. It was the third episode where we began with a apology from Will McAvoy. And it went to talk about how they created this deal. And of course, I have no clue how honest or true this fact, this thing that the apology brings about. They created this deal with the government saying you this, this station could make money for 23 hours of the day, but for one hour, you have to give us the news. And the only problem they had with that is that they forgot to say during that hour you couldn't sell advertising and that line that reese gives this week for this whole argument saying to mckenzie you could have worked for npr you could have worked for pbs but you decided to work for all the other news stations who all have to work off of marketing so once you're earning your money via marketing dollars you're gonna have to always have a battle between ratings and content the show has tried to give off this idea of being elitist and skirt and throwing away even wondering about ratings i can see where reese is coming from with this i can see how this is what should be happening more we should be seeing more of the pull and the push and pull of the news versus the ratings and this week it just felt like it became a complete pull and it it just went too far with it. Because just like how Chadwick said, the, the act of God basically forcing them now into saying, all right, we ha- can do it our way because obviously God doesn't want us to do it their way. So Right. 
you know, again, it's it's the same problem that the show has had on a number of different issues. These are interesting ideas, and there's a whole lot of really interesting angles that, that you can approach them from. But instead, for whatever reason, Sorkin is just choosing to present them in the simplest way possible. as It's just plain black and white. And it's just not very interesting. And it's not very dramatic. And I was kind of bored by the end of the episode as a result. And I was kind of thinking in the back of my head, oh, come on. Really? This is, this is all you're going to give me? And, you know, and I did find it interesting that... You know, as you mentioned earlier in the season, they had brought up this whole idea of ratings, and Charlie had even told uh, Reese, "Don't talk to Will about ratings at all. We, you know, we don't want to hear about ratings." And basically, now that's all Charlie is talking about is the ratings, and we have to make compromises. So it seems like the characters are willing to make compromises that, it, in a way that it, it, it doesn't seem. It doesn't seem like it's coming organically out of how they've been depicted in the past. And at the same time, Sorkin is still trying to present this very black and white depiction of the whole conflict. Chadwick, any further thoughts on the whole ratings versus principles idea? What are your thoughts on where the episode can go from here? Because obviously this is a two-part episode that ended with an act of God. So what? how, how do you think given what we've seen so far, how is Sorkin going to wrap that up? It's funny, I forgot it was a two-part episode, because it didn't seem like there was much that had to be continued to the next one. Um, can, by the way, can can we make a rule that all two-part episodes air at the same time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. I mean, once it happened, at, once you had the, 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 that final scene... I was. I found myself going. Oh yeah, the title of the episode is the blackout. Of course, there had to be a blackout, and they just shoved it in right there at the very end. The cliffhanger. Yeah. Where we know exactly what's going to ha- how they're going to get off the cliff. So this is my issue with the show in general. No one makes bad decisions, right? So it would be far more interesting if they did indulge themselves in Casey Anthony coverage, and then all of a sudden, all the viewers they've been courting to prove that they're going to be smart and, and far more focused on the news, actually end up leaving the show anyway. Yeah. They're damned if they do, damned if they don't. That's a far more interesting, uh, complex situation that they'll put themselves in than this black and white thing again. Yeah, I agree. I, for all the, the, um, the talk about, oh, we're losing viewers, we're losing viewers, I, I was thinking to myself, well, wait, some viewers have stuck around, so are they just hoping that they'll gain back more viewers than that portion right there that could definitely leave. I don't know. It just didn't make a a whole lot of sense. And it it goes back to that whole issue of compromise. And why can't you compromise and try to do both? Because Aaron Sorkin doesn't do that. You know, this is where I think newsroom conversations really break down. Right. The newsroom is not operating on the logic that we want it to be operating on. There is no conversation to be had about why can't it do blank? Because, of course, it can. Aaron Sorkin has just decided that it won't. And so to try and make sense of this sort of, of this guy's whims is, is sort of is a dead end, I think. I mean, that's why, that's why I led with saying it's a mediocre show. The moment you make peace with it, the show becomes a lot more fun because you don't have to take it. You don't have to want it to be something more. It's, it's like having a friend or a parent or a family member or whatever. And you just keep hoping that they're going to be something different than they are, someone different than they are. 
And every time that they that that you invest in them, they end up showing that you're they are not the person that you want them to be, and that frustrates you. But the moment you can make peace with the person that they are, all those frustrations at least become a bit more muted, if not go away completely. And that's I think how you have to approach a show. Hey, I have a I have a sim- quick question because at the end of the day, we're all we're all heaping all of the blame all on Aaron Sorkin. Um, and for some reason, this just popped up in my mind. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put up a versus right now. Aaron Sorkin against David Mamet. Who's a better all around writer? Oh man, I think <laughs> I don't know. That depends on what you want to write. <laughs> First of all, <laughs> I don't know Chadwick. Uh, I don't know Mamet well enough. I really only know uh, Glenn Gary. Um, I, I, I'm gonna abstain. Yeah, uh, from what little I've seen of. Mammoth, they're both very similar in terms of how they write dialogue, I think, in certain ways. And Sorkin himself has even said that in many ways he's similar to Mammoth. Um, But I don't think that Mammoth has the same worldview and the same outlook in what he writes as Aaron Sorkin does. As for to whether or not one outlook is better than the other, I don't know. I, I, I think it really depends on what you're in the mood for. But why, why, do you, why do you bring that up? Why do you bring up David Mamet? I've never heard Sorkin or Mamet talk about each other in any way, but it just came up in my mind thinking about people who write similar to Sorkin's. People, mm-hmm. people who write in a way in which it seems like once they get to a character, they can put them in a vacuum and just have that character talk in a way that no person in the real world would ever talk and at the same time make that into an entertainment entertaining moment but at the same time when i'm thinking of mamet and i think mamet might have the edge on sorkin right now in the fact that mamet as far as i know hasn't done any television work it never it never becomes too much for mamet he always finds a way to ground it into his narrative and now as i'm watching more and more television sorkin um, it feels like he he's getting overwhelmed by the fact that he's spending too much time with his characters, cause cause film Sorkin it's it's very well tapered film Sorkin television Sorkin it's it's getting out of hand. Did either of you listen to the interview with Sorkin um, on Fresh Air about a week or two ago? I don't think I ever got to it. No. Okay, it was actually a really interesting interview in which I you know it it seems it seemed to me like Sorkin really does understand a lot of his own weaknesses. Um, And he acknowledged in that interview that his main strength as a writer is dialogue and story not so much a lot of the time. And I find myself thinking, you know, okay, if Aaron Sorkin isn't as good with the story, why doesn't HBO have their top writers helping him out? Their top writers haven't won an Oscar. Well, no, it's because it's because there's a central hypocrisy to Aaron Sorkin, which is that he talks really well in interviews and he says all sorts of beautiful things, etc. But in the end, he doesn't actually listen to his writing room. The stories out of West Wing are legendary for how Aaron Sorkin wrote every script on his own. The writers didn't do didn't do anything. Right. And from what we're led to believe, the same thing is happening in the newsroom now. And he fi- and the whole writing uh, majority of the writing staff was fired for season two. Uh, and, re, you know, a different writing staff is going to come on. Aaron Sorkin doesn't, he, he's able to admit his failures, but not actually do anything about them. His ego gets in the way. 
I mean, I I haven't watched The West Wing, but I've I've heard a story, and you guys can confirm it for me, that apparently at the end of season four, when he was forced to leave the show, he wrote the show into a corner at the end of season four in such a way that they had to go through leaps and bounds at the beginning of season five to make sure that it could continue. Am I am I right? Uh, I don't. I wouldn't put it that way. I wouldn't say he wrote the show into a corner. I did find the ending of season four to be a bit over the top, but I, I, I don't know. It, it didn't strike me as in any way like he was getting back at the other writers or, or, or trying to make it difficult for them. But did, you, did you see those four seasons of The West Wing, Chadwick? Yeah, originally. I have revisited them. I couldn't, my, 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 I'm not an encyclopedic uh, culture guy. I, I couldn't tell you what happened with season when. Alright, so as far as I know, I'm, we can talk about this. It's, it's aged. I even haven't watched a show and I'm willing to talk about this. As far as I know, at the end of season four, they hospitalize the president, my, Martin Sheen's character, in some way. No, I think you're thinking of season one. Season four ends, if I'm recalling this correctly, with the president's daughter being kidnapped and the, t- the president temporarily giving up. Uh, the presidency. Oh right. So so it's kind of what I'm thinking of. It was it was basically an idea to say that we have to find a way to take the president away from the show. Right. But the, the to be fair, it seemed pretty organic within the the context of the show. And in season five, it didn't seem like it was too difficult to work around. So I don't I don't I don't, I'm not sure if I believe that he wrote it in that way to make it difficult for other writers but getting back to the newsroom i think you're right chadwick that sorkin does have a bit of an ego problem and maybe it would be better for the show if he actually was willing to share the writing credit yeah anything else either of you wanted to say about sorkin i I, I am am sorkined out i feel as though i have said my piece okay i like olivia munn's ass oh let's not go there let's just Let's not get into this conversation. Stop reinforcing it, okay? Stop reinforcing it. Hey, I'm just one man. I'm allowed to have a thought. <laughs> that's true. Your thoughts aren't being broadcast to, to millions of people, and that's probably a good thing. <laughs> well, I think that will wrap it up for this episode of Navigating the Newsroom. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, and uh, please write us a review. We love to hear... Uh, back from you and we'd love to hear what you think about the program Uh, you can also email us uh, by emailing navigatingnewsroom at filmgeekradio.com chadwick where can people find you in your work oh goodness on the newsroom on vulture.com new york magazine's pop culture site and otherwise uh out and about i don't always write about tv so most of it's uh proper journalism that even will mcavoy would approve of maybe sorkin should hire you to help him out be oh a consultant. Aaron Sorkin would not approve of me, though. Well, uh, can where, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, uh, yes, my uh, at Chadwick Matlin, my first name, last name, all sorts of trenchant and insightful commentary happening on Chadwick Matlin on Twitter. Are you claiming to be Will McAvoy? Is that what's happening here? Yes, I am the Will McAvoy of Twitter. Bow before me. Okay. Can we expect to see more emails from Brian in the future? You know... Uh, hopefully, I don't know if I'm going to write next week's recap. I have a wedding to go to, uh, so it's a little complicated timing-wise. 
But considering we know that Brian is still in the in the in the uh, in the newsroom next week, if I do end up writing that recap, uh, it may be that more emails are leaked. Uh, we'll see if we can get a hand uh, a hand on them. Okay, <laughs> that sounds good. Uh, Andrew, where can people find you online? I'm on Twitter at Gman Reviews, and they can find most of my writing over at gmanreviews.com. And I think that's enough for this week, plug wise. Okay. I'm Andrew Johnson. You can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash writer Andrew. And you can find more of my writing over at thekuleshoveffect.com and, of course, at filmgeekradio.com. Chadwick, thank you very much for joining us on today's show. It's been a great conversation, and we'd we love to have you on any other time. You, you, want, you feel like talking about uh, Sorkin, just let us know. If I feel like talking about Sorkin, you'll be my first stop, but no guarantee. Like talking about yeah, I'm not sure uh, if the newsroom and Aaron Sorkin it would be number one on my list of things to talk about most weeks, but you never know. All right, Andrew, sign us off. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Good night, everyone. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!